Hi, I'm Jacqueline Kinser, and for the past five years, I've been helping families all around the globe to overcome their breastfeeding challenges. And this is the first non-clinical breastfeeding podcast that shows you how to rock breastfeeding and master motherhood through practical tips, mindset shifts, and honest conversation to create a confident and empowering breastfeeding journey. This is the Breastfeeding Talk Podcast. Welcome back to the Breastfeeding Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Jacqueline Kinser, and today's episode is one that I actually meant to share a long time ago. Uh, It's from March 1st, 2022, so almost a year ago, and it's uh, actually a, a recording of a joint Instagram live that I did with an incredible colleague of mine, Allison Alexander. She is also an IBCLC, and she is the owner of Skilled Lactation Solutions. She posts some great info on her account, which we've got linked up in the show notes here for you. And we did a joint live on treating oral ties and what that looks like. So it was more of a deep dive of navigating what can often be the confusing process of tongue ties and what the best path forward is when you think your baby has one. We also discussed some of the signs and symptoms and who should be on your baby's care team. And really what we shared in this live recording here was our perspective as lactation consultants who work with families with tied babies. There's a lot of things that are very frustrating for us quite often and obviously very frustrating for the families that we work with. And I really loved to hear her perspective on things and be able to have this back and forth discussion. And because it was live, you know, we obviously were looking at some of the comments as they rolled in. So the original post, if you want to watch the video version of it and go read any of the comments, we have that linked up in the show notes for you as well. Um, But it's just a, a great discussion that I felt like would be a wonderful thing to share here on the podcast with you. So without further ado, here's my discussion with Allison. Welcome to our talk about, I think my baby has a tongue tie. Uh, Jacqueline from Holistic Lactation is going to be joining us today, and we're going to be answering some of the questions that we got earlier in the week, as well as just talking about how to navigate this really confusing process where there's a lot of opinions and Parents are kind of left not knowing what to do if they think their baby has a tongue tie or if they've been diagnosed but told things were fine and they don't really feel like things are fine. So really excited for you to join us today. Hi. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, I'm really excited. Uh, One of the things I love about seeing your feed and your practice is uh, similar to mine in that we look at like the whole dyad. So dyad meaning parent, baby, and how everything is working together. So I think this comes up a lot where maybe one person is experiencing problems and the other person is not. So maybe the baby's gaining weight, but it's the parent having problems. So because there's two members of this feeding team, it gets really confusing and there's a lot of opinions out there. So just helping parents navigate a super confusing process, I think having like two people that know what they're talking about uh, can be really helpful. So 
one of the first questions we got was just like, what's, what should I even be looking for? Or what is a sign that my baby has a tongue tie or that that's something that we're, we're dealing with? Now, what's something that you see? Cause you work virtually. So you're assessing things with telehealth. What is something that you see often? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and just to be fair, like the only reason why we're great at telehealth is because we have so much in-person experience and, I've worked really closely as well as one of my other team members with a local dentist that's very skilled in in treating ties. We've assisted with those procedures and things. So we have that really in-depth understanding, right? But yeah, it can be a lot of things and it's not, you know, it's kind of a mix and match bag of symptoms, right? You could have breastfeeding pain. You could not have breastfeeding pain. You could have an oversupply. You could have an undersupply. You know, you could have trouble latching. Someone could tell you the latch looks great, but there are always always things that are going wrong, right? The baby might spit up because they're swallowing air. They might have hiccups very often. They might be gassy. They might be colicky. They might not be any of those things. (laughs) So it's funny because it's like, how do we tease out, you know, getting that information to parents? Like, hey, these are some red flags. And someone will say, well, my baby doesn't have that. So they couldn't possibly have a tie. And we're like, no, 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 they can still have a tie. But also, not every baby has a tie. We're not trying We're not trying to tell you your baby is tied if they're not. So it's one of those funny questions. But, you know, some really, some really great things to, to look at that I would say that are really foundational is if you know deep down as a mom that breastfeeding is not going well, then it's not. And you should yeah. listen to that and you should trust that. You shouldn't be sort of gaslit in a way by someone telling you, well, your baby's gaining weight, fine, so there's no problem, or breastfeeding doesn't hurt, so it's fine. That is the bare minimum requirement for breastfeeding to go, you know, decently. It does not mean that breastfeeding is going optimally. If you're not enjoying breastfeeding, and I mean, like, you dread nursing all of the time, either breastfeeding's not for you, but more likely than not, it's because there's some underlying problem going on. Or the baby's not having a good time. And I guess if the baby hates breastfeeding, right. that's not in their DNA or their biological programming. They're programmed to survive and be able to nourish themselves through breastfeeding. So huge red flag. That, and that's what I, I hear. I see a lot is like, it's just stressful. My baby hates breastfeeding. I feel like I'm forcing them to, or they'll only breastfeed peacefully at night during the day. It's just this battle and they're fighting and arching. And it's like, I'm, I'm fighting them to get them to eat. Um, so like you and your baby should be having a decent time. Like it's not easy, but it shouldn't be terrible every single feeding either. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I think you know, is there that learning curve to breastfeeding in the beginning? Yes, absolutely. Especially if you've never done it before. But even if you have, this is a different baby, right? But if you're, if things aren't progressively getting easier, you know, after the first couple of weeks, that's definitely a sign that something's not going right. Could be a tie, could be something else, but more often than not, I see these lingering issues that are really caused by ties. And I'm sure you do too. Right. Yeah. Or like, the latch is perfect, but I'm having A, B, C, and D. And so why is that happening? And then I'm looking at things and assessing and, and pointing out, like, maybe the latch is not as perfect as we've been led to believe. Like, it just because a baby's mouth is open and, and on tissue, that doesn't necessarily mean that a baby's not doing a lot of extra work to stay there. So that's not anything a parent would necessarily see, but it's something that you need somebody skilled enough to maybe spot those things that are off just because like 
the lips look like fish lips doesn't necessarily mean the baby's not working really hard to get that milk out. Yeah. Um, and that, that was another question too, of like, I've already seen a lactation consultant who said there wasn't one, but I still feel like something's not right. I'm sure you, you get those like second and third opinions as often as I do. Oh yeah. That's primarily what we do actually is yep. see people who have seen an IBCLC, seen someone that's dismissed their concerns or has not been able to give them one, an explanation to why things aren't going well, and two, a real path forward on how to fix those things. Um, they're often just told, well, this is just the way it is, or maybe breastfeeding's not for you, or, you know, some other kind of solution. You know, I think to my core and, and one of our values that we have in our practice is that there's hardly a breastfeeding problem that's not fixable. Like, it's so incredibly rare, um, but it's just about getting the right expertise, the right team, the right support. And we don't pretend to do it all, but certainly, you know, a role like us, these IBCLCs who are like us that know how to properly assess and play that detective role in finding out you know, what's really going on here? Why is the baby doing this? Why are your breasts doing this? And then once we understand that, then we can suggest interventions. If we see how those interventions go and that they don't work out the way we'd like, then we know there's a deeper issue going on. And so it's like this layers of the onion approach that we're taking when we look at breastfeeding or bottle feeding or whatever it is, right, to just determine, hey, like, you know, is this something that we can fix as lactation consultants or is this something that we need someone else to come in here and be a part of this team too, which, you know, in this discussion would be someone to go in and surgically release those ties or to perform body work related to the tension created by those ties. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The heart behind the I'm on podcast is storytelling because every mom has a story to tell. I know that when I talk to my friends who are parenting and we share stories, we all end up feeling less alone and more capable of loving our kids well. You can find information everywhere on the internet. Some is bad parenting advice and some is pretty wise. We like to think there's a lot of wisdom on imom.com. And when you combine that signature wisdom with a great story, it brings parenting to life. We want a mom who's listening to see herself and her kids in these stories and rest in the confidence that she is the perfect mom for her kids. Check out the iMom podcast with new episodes every Monday. Body work was another question that came up too. Like, how do I even know what the baby needs or what, uh, what body work I should seek out? Like my answer to that is that the baby tells me. Like the baby is the one that dictates what kind of body work they need. And they don't all need the same, the same. Like sometimes it's, you know, parents can do things at home to really facilitate that tension working itself out. And sometimes they need more help. Yep. Um, but usually just looking at what's this baby doing to compensate for this tie and what is their body struggling with? Like personally, that's just what usually leads me down the road of like, oh, a physical therapist might be the best for them or a really skilled infant chiropractor might be the best for them of like helping to match what the baby is needing with the type of body work that would be best for that problem. Right. Well, and, and I think, you know, kind of the real answer to that question that if, if someone is asking us, how do we know what kind of body work the baby needs? The answer that you basically just described is ask your IBCLC because we are trained to know that, right? We don't do the body work, but we understand when the body work is needed, what type of body work is needed. And to your post that you just posted, and I just shared to our stories, 
you know, there's this, there's this mountain that you climb, this sort of path through treatment, right? And it starts with the IBCLC that's skilled in ties. Because if you go to the chiropractor, well, of course, the chiropractor is going to tell you the baby needs chiropractic, and they're going to set up all these visits and things. And it's not that it won't necessarily be helpful. Although in many cases, I see it's not if it's the wrong type of body work, the frequency that you're taking the baby is not correct. So, you know, there's all these things and they're going to try and help because, you know, that's why they got into this business anyway, right? They want to help people. Um, but that person is not equipped to help you with breastfeeding itself, right? They're only treating the baby. Same with going to, you know, the tongue tie release provider and saying, you know, I want you to tell me if my baby's tied or not. Well, they can't functionally assess breastfeeding or bottle feeding. Um, you know, they cannot assess what's going on with your baby's sleep, with their milk transfer, all of those things. They can simply look at tongue range of motion when not feeding. Um, and then they can look at the anatomy and they can do a procedure. So if you're jumping into physical treatment options before you've gotten an assessment to know what is actually needed, you may actually be spending a lot more money than you needed to in the long run, um, which is really unfortunate, right? I'll have parents say, well, I've been to the chiropractor 12 times and I spent $700 on the tongue tie release and nothing's gotten better. And I'm like, but why didn't you just spend $200 with IBCLC who probably <laughs> correct you some oral exercises, right? Could have directed you to a provider that maybe doesn't even charge as much and does a better job or, you know, like, those things like we're always trying to at least i am and i know i'm sure you're the same way is trying to minimize and streamline that path because holy moly like postpartum is already a lot so is breastfeeding now you tack ties and your baby on top of that and treatment of that we've got to be really careful about how hard we're pushing families to pursue treatment like we do we give you, you know, everything you should possibly be doing? Yes, but it's also your IBCLC's job to tell you, like, here's what's absolutely necessary. These things are kind of fluff. They're kind of optional. It's like, we're not going to tell you to buy three different breast pumps, right? They might all be good breast pumps that would work great for you, but we're typically going to go with the one that would work best for you. So that's the same idea when we're talking about ties. And I don't, I don't like hearing that an IBCLC has sent a family on this wild goose chase of occupational therapy, speech therapy, feeding therapy, physical therapy, two different dentists, three different chiropractors. And then I see them and like, okay, let's just, again, streamline the process, focus on what specifically this baby needs. And the problem with all those other providers is that none of them have been educated to take care of the dyad, which is both sides. They are only focusing on your baby. And if they don't focus on the other half, you're not going to see the same progress because you can't do something to one without doing something to the other. You have to treat both at the same time. Yeah. So like if we're just messing with the baby, we could be messing with the milk and not even knowing it if we're ignoring the parent side. So the problem with the wild goose chase is that you spend time and money and you don't get this full, you know, holistic sense of, of both sides being treated and improving. Um, and like you said, starting with the IBCLC, we don't do it all, but we we should have the skills to know what is necessary to see progress. And it's not 12 visits with a chiropractor. It's not, you know, this long drawn out process that takes a whole maternity leave just to, to get through. And then the parents are going back to work, you know, in a lot of cases. It's like they spent 12 <laughs> weeks trying to breastfeed their baby just yep. to hand them off to somebody else to bottle feed. So it's just, it's extremely frustrating to, to hear that wasted time, wasted money, wasted energy. So you mentioned like an, an IBCLC who specializes in ties. So that 
that isn't all of them and that's okay. But I think that's important for parents to know too, that I don't see like NICU babies, extremely premature babies, not my area, not something I'm comfortable navigating. And if someone came to me with that situation, I would, I would refer them to an IBCLC that specializes in that particular case. Yep. So I think as a profession, we need to get a little bit better about knowing what we're good at and what our specialty is and referring out if that's not us. So in the case of ties though, it's not a one size fits all. Not everyone has pursued additional skills and education to not just identify that there might be one, but actually help. So like, do you, and you said you find that you're a second or third opinion in a lot of cases for people who haven't gotten answers. What do you tell people to look for in terms of like, if you're looking for an IBCLC to work with, if you suspect a a tongue tie, like what are some questions you should be asking? Yeah, absolutely. I love that you said that. It's one of the biggest reasons why I've, I've grown my team and and now five lactation consultants, like, like I've got Nicole, she's a registered dietitian. She works in the children's hospital and she is an amazing expert on diet and food intolerances. Now I know a lot about that stuff and I've definitely done those cases and, and created like even a course on that, but I would much rather have Nicole where that's like her wheelhouse to do that. Right. But does she know how to work with like, you know, a three month old baby who's struggling to breastfeed as well as someone like me or someone else on the team? No, absolutely not. So when you pick a provider on my team, they're specialized. Like if you, if you want an oral tie assessment, you're going to work with Kate, like, or, or me, if I'm doing appointments at the moment. So it's really, really important to know that. And what do you want to look for? Well, first of all, you want to know like that this person, you know, either it's, it could be from, you know, if you're doing kind of a passive investigation, right? If you're looking at their website, if you're looking at their social media, let's say, like, do they talk about ties, right? It's one of my sort of requisites when I'm looking at potential providers to treat ties. Do you have like under your services section, like, do you have tongue ties on there? If not, if you're telling, you know, all this story about how you do Invisalign and whatever, and and maybe I don't even know if you work with infants, like may not be a good fit, right? To be fair, a lot of people don't update their websites, but if you're doing a passive investigation, like hopefully there's a mention of ties somewhere there, right? And, you know, everybody's, like I said, they're going to be eager to help you, right? These are people that are in, in professions where they want to help you and whatnot, but just, you could ask some questions like, you know, what frequency do you see ties in your clients that you work with? Because if someone says really rarely, almost never, I'm going to say that they probably don't know how to prob- properly assess for ties. It's not the vast majority of babies that have ties, but it's certainly a threshold where if you are working with people that have breastfeeding problems, you're seeing ties a lot. And so if you're saying, oh, only once a month and I see so many patients, like, Uh, probably want to go somewhere else is my suggestion. Um, And then just ask them like, you know, do, what do you do when you find, you know, ties during your assessment? Yeah. And just asking that question, like see what they say, right? If they go, well, I never recommend treating them. Again, that's like a red flag for a provider you wouldn't want to go see. I mean, it's, it's an anatomical congenital defect that isn't going to be corrected with stretching or any amount of body work if it's truly a tie. So I think those are a good couple starting points. You know, there's a lot of nuances you could get into. Um, but I would say any provider like you or I as an IBCLC that really sp- focuses on and specializes and works with ties, like if you come to us with questions, like we're going to have an answer for you. <laughs> so, um, you know, just I, I would say just, you know, ask questions, you know, just kind of do a yeah, little interview, really... whether it's text or an email or a phone call or something like that. 
Yeah, you're usually talking with someone before you set up an appointment. So those two questions are really good. Like, how often do you see them and what do you do when you find one? It's also a red flag if they say, like, oh, I, I refer you to this dentist and, and they, they, they do laser or I refer you to this right. person and they clip it. That is not what we want to do. <laughs> like, that's and that's a big part of it, too, that there are plenty of IBCLCs who can find a tie but they may not understand the process to get the best results and the fullest function for both of you. And the timeline is something that we focus on really heavily. And I know you do too, of helping parents to understand that a procedure does not give your baby any skills to feed any better than they had the day before. So it doesn't teach them how to feed any better. It just gives them more room to work with their tongue. So that's something that I think not enough parents get that education of like, you can help your baby day one after seeing an IBCLC because we can give you ways to build these feeding skills that don't involve immediately running to someone to cut it. Some of the worst outcomes I see are the people who have had it lasered or clipped or, or whatever, and their baby refuses the breast or goes on a strike or, you know, that because they've had this procedure and like the rug got pulled out from under them. They don't even have the way that they had to feed that was comfortable for them to rely on anymore. And they've got no new skills to work with. So there's not like an exact time period. Like I can't say, oh, we'll work for two weeks and then you'll have the procedure and work for two weeks because every baby's different. But I can tell you that we're going to do some work before and some work after to make sure your baby's in a really good place to benefit from a procedure or else why do it? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, one of, one of the, you know, for specific examples, like let's say a baby has like total breast aversion and won't latch. The last thing you should be doing is going and getting a phrenectomy for that baby because they're going to now have pain in their mouth. You're going to be, you know, putting your fingers in their mouth, creating some more discomfort for them multiple times a day. Do you think that baby wants to latch at the breast now? Heck no, absolutely not. And so you, you put false hope into, you know, a a procedure that was never going to do that for you. So I like to get babies back to the breast, you know, at least part-time, at least partially that there's some familiarity there, even if it has to be a nipple shield or something before you go. And the other thing too, is I cannot tell you how many moms just honestly have a terrible latch technique and it's not their fault. No one's ever shown them, right? Right. If you latch that baby, right after that procedure, which 99% of the time you're going to do, and you have that crappy latch technique and they get a shallow latch right ever, you are re-imprinting and solidifying the negative patterns that have gotten you to where you are today. You are not in any way by continuing poor positioning, poor latch technique, especially now once they have full range of motion. So you've given them the gift of full range of motion and you've given them no ability to use that for both of your benefit. So it's huge. Absolutely. And then just knowing, I think parents think that the procedure itself is like a magic bullet. It's going to solve all of our problems, but you can do so much to help before that. And like you said, actually having a functional latch where they can remove milk more effectively, where it doesn't hurt you every single time, like that is possible to get to without a procedure. A lot of it is teaching a baby what they need to be doing. Sometimes it is body work to let their body relax and, and be able to latch effectively. So the the timeline is really important. Not that you can't have a decent outcome if, if you don't do these things, but it's those babies have to work a lot harder for a lot longer. It tends to be more stressful. 
um, on both parties because like they just, they kind of weren't prepared and then they get the rug pulled out from under them and they, they don't know what to do at that point. Um, Very true. And then I, I have parents ask me sometimes, like I go into detail about what it's going to look like the healing process afterwards and what we need to do afterwards to make sure that they get like the most benefit from this procedure. Like again, or why do it? If we do like a hip or a knee replacement and then we don't do physical therapy afterwards, are you going to get the most benefit? No, like your, your body's still going to struggle. So parents, if they're honest with me and say like, I don't plan to do anything afterwards. I would just assume have them not do it then to put their baby through it and then not do the work afterwards because 100%. that is so important to healing. Hundred percent. So, yeah, it's if a, a provider being pain and a waste of everyone's energy everybody. and and can potentially make breastfeeding worse. You know, I, I think to your point. Oh yeah. If you do not do the aftercare, and we don't just mean stretching the wound or, or lifting the tongue or the lip or whatever, if you do not do proper aftercare, the rate and likelihood of reattachment is very high. And most of the time when I see significant reattachment because the aftercare wasn't done properly, the body work wasn't addressed or, you know, the, the breastfeeding wasn't managed well, that reattachment actually makes your baby worse off than before they had the ties released. So yeah. I, I mean, I've seen babies just completely lose the ability to even latch at the breast and can hardly even transfer milk from a bottle. Now it's an emergency situation and you're running to the children's hospital to get a feeding tube on the weekend because the dentist isn't open. I mean, like, and that's, you know, I don't want to like scare anybody, but these are real life scenarios that I've seen multiple times, like with clients who have called me in a panic. They didn't work with us ahead of time. And they're like, my baby won't take food. And I'm like, right. This is not an emergency triage center. <laughs> like, no, you, but you have got to get the baby food first. Right. And then this is where pediatricians, you know, kind of get this confirmation bias and they go, well, see, treating, cutting a baby's tongue makes it worse. And I'm like, but you never referred for appropriate treatment, right? So just cutting, just lasering, it's not enough. There are all these other pieces. And the other thing that's really, really important that I feel like we're assessing as lactation consultants because we treat the diet of the mother and the baby and the whole family is we assess for do you have support in your home to manage the care that this process requires? Do you have the financial resources to even access all of this treatment? Do you have, you know, the ability with your employment to, you know, you know, do the aftercare that's required, you know, and if you don't like, is the daycare center willing to do this for you? Are you going to be able to take time out? Like there's all these things that we're considering your mental health, like, is this, is this going to throw you over the edge because you are already like hanging on by a thread, you know, right. and so maybe we need to adjust the timing of these other suggested interventions based on your unique situation. You know, I've had a lot of clients say, well, I really need to talk to my husband. They're not supportive and whatnot. Well, when your baby is crying, when you're doing the wound care or, you know, that three to five hour period after the procedure, when they're generally going to be fussy and your unsupportive partner throws it in your face and says, see, I told you we shouldn't have done it. What kind of outcome is that going to create for you and your child? Not a good one. And so we don't ever want to have like a, in this position where we've right. had stress because of our recommendations. And a lot of providers don't look at that. Right. Because they're not looking at both sides, though. They're not looking at like the full picture. They're looking at, you know, a tongue or a mouth if they find it at all. And I like I've 
talked to pediatricians before and have good relationships with them. And they're saying like, they don't teach us this. This is not anything we go into in detail, you know, and even pediatric ENTs and pediatric dentists, like it depends on their education and the background that they chose, but that may not be something that they've gotten a good evidence-based up-to-date education on. Um, and it's not something they're required to go back and get if they've been practicing 20 years and they didn't get it then. Like it's, there's no requirement for them to stay up to date with things like that. So, you know, going to your pediatrician to ask them if your baby has a tongue tie is really not the recommended path and not because your pediatrician may not be amazing, but it's just not something that they have the skills to assess. And again, they're not looking at both sides. They're just looking at a mouth. And if they don't have the skills to assess how that mouth functions, it's just not going to give you an answer that is going to work well for for your situation. Starting with the IBCLC, who knows how to assess both of you, needs to be the way to go. Not that we're not going to involve your pediatrician, um, but that pediatricians shouldn't be stuck one if you're concerned about your baby having a tongue tie. Yes, yes. I, I think you so thoughtfully explained that. And, you know, they're, they're generalists, right? And, and if I would say if they're going to specialize in anything, it's, you know, looking at growth and development of children and infectious diseases of children. Um, beyond that, they're not feeding specialists, right? And um, they're certainly not um, going to do, you know, uh, they're not psych psychiatric evaluation special. There's a lot of things they don't specialize in, and, you know, quite honestly, they should just be referring out to, right? Um, but a lot of the times it's just looking at a, a whole child, you know, they're, they're kind of just, you know, covering a lot of ground in a single interaction with that patient, right? So there's a lot of other things that you can look at and consider when it comes to your whole child, your whole baby. Um, and it's a lot to expect your pediatrician to know all the things, quite honestly. So if you do have concerns, find the right specialist for those concerns, um, because we exist and it's, you know, all different <laughs> disciplines, right? So you talked a little bit about this earlier and just like, who should, who should do the procedure? And I hear a lot like, well, cool. My pediatrician offers it. Um, I'll just go there. And it's hard when you have a really good trusting relationship with your pediatrician. What, like, why wouldn't you want this person to, to do this? It's like a one-stop shop. That sounds convenient for everyone. I know they take my insurance. Um, sounds great. Like personally, I had a pediatrician do my son's as an IBCLC, and then I'm sitting there going, okay, but this isn't better. Like, why isn't this better? Um, which like started me down the whole like functional oral assessment rabbit hole because I knew enough to knew my son had a tie and my pediatrician said he'd clip it. And I was like, okay, sounds good. Everybody's happy, but it didn't fix our problems. Yep. So in the event that the pediatrician does offer it or that's where the parents want to go how do you how do you navigate that situation good question you know what i i really tell families and and everyone on my team approaches this in a similar way and it's that you want to go to the person who's going to do it right the first time because remember like you are sending your infant for a surgery a surgical procedure um, and you want to minimize the trauma and the pain that your baby undergoes related to that not just during the procedure but also to make sure that they don't now need a second procedure because something wasn't yeah. done right the first time so you absolutely, even if your baby doesn't have buckle ties, which if no one knows what that is, those are the little ties on the sides here. So you have a tongue tie, lip tie, upper lip tie. There can be lower lip ties. It's really rare. But then there's buckle ties on the side. 
you want to go to a provider that willingly treats buckle ties if they exist. Why is that? Because it's pretty much a guarantee that they know what they're doing. Um, right. <laughs> you do not want to choose a provider based on the tool that they use. Is CO2 laser the best tool to perform phrenectomy? Yes, absolutely. Because of the way that it ablates the tissue, it doesn't chart, it doesn't make direct contact with a hot tip, it's, it, it minimizes bleeding, all of those things. But just because someone can afford a multi-hundred thousand dollar laser does not mean that they know how to use it properly. There are settings and surgical techniques that need to be taken into account. I would much rather you see someone that's highly skilled with scissors and electric cautery, even if maybe those are not the best tools for the job, but they have the right surgical technique. Now, you're not going to know that as the parent. So I, I think a good way to know is, do they treat buckle ties? And also, will they treat all of the ties at the same time? Because why would you take your baby? I mean, there are some fringe cases where you want to space it out. But for the most part, why would you want to take your baby for a lip or a tongue tie release and then come back two weeks later and do it all over again and prolong the healing, prolong the pain, only fix half of the problem at a time? Like that is cruel to babies, I think. And so I just would say I really don't advocate that. So for a couple of things to look for, but generally speaking, dentists, pediatric dentists tend to have the most training, tend to be the most motivated to get um, continuing education in this field. Um, second to that, I would say, you know, I see pediatricians actually stepping up to the plate a lot of the time. But keep in mind, for a pediatrician, it's typically not worth it for them to pursue also doing procedures. Like, they're not going to remove a skin tag on your child. They're going to refer to a dermatologist. And there's a reason for that, right, is that it just interrupts their whole patient flow. Um, you know, it may not be very financially viable with everything else that they're doing in the practice. It's kind of like too much context switching in a lot of ways. So many times they're not going to do that. They also generally can't afford fancy lasers. Pediatricians actually don't make a lot of money. So if they do procedures, what they have to pay for malpractice is so much higher that a lot of them don't do it because they don't want to have to carry the malpractice nope. to be able to do surgical procedures in the office. They're already not getting paid as much as a specialist. Go see the people that make more money than me. Go have them do it for, for most procedures, but sometimes they'll still do, do a tie. Yep. Um, dentists can use a laser for other dental procedures. So it makes a lot of sense for them to kind of already have the laser and right. then also add on this procedure because they've already got the tool. They already have that sort of malpractice liability insurance in place, right? So laser safety protocols. I mean, there's a whole thing. And then I was just going to say ENTs, they will some often do the procedure. Most of the time, they don't have the proper training, though. And Dr. Gahari says this because he's an ENT, and he's like, ear, nose, and throat. He was like, there's nothing about mouth in that <laughs> acronym. And he's right because, yes, they can remove tonsils and adenoids and work on turbinates and do all these other things. But when it comes to the tongue or the lips, it's really not their area. And so some of them do have you know, the proper training, but most of them do incomplete releases. Most of them will deny that ties cause problems. They will deny the existence of them. Even worse, many of them will recommend that you put your child under, meaning using general anesthesia to knock them out, which is incredibly risky and dangerous. I mean, there are some high-risk cases where it's necessary, but these are older babies that we're talking about, not, you know, three-week-olds, three-month-olds. Um, and so there's a huge problem, you know, and then there's other kind of you know, fringe nurse practitioners that can practice independently and do this and midwives and whatnot. So most part, I would say a dentist is usually a good bet.
For the most part, yeah. There we have one ENT who has has pursued training and has you know perfected a surgical technique, and it's it's nice to have both options. But like we say, hey, you can see him, but no, he's a unicorn. Like you can't just see any ENT and expect them to have these skills. But he is an airway specialist, so that's how that rabbit hole kind of happened. Is he understands the implication of tongue tie and a healthy airway? So your your generic ENT who does like ear tubes and tonsils, that's really not something that they've they've done a lot of a lot of education and training. And then the last question we got is like, what happens if a baby seems like they're doing fine and then all of a sudden starts to have problems? If it's a tie, like why wouldn't that have existed? Why wouldn't they have had problems from day one? Like they didn't just grow a tie halfway through. So like why at three or four months might a baby suddenly be having issues when they seemed fine before if if it's a tongue tie that's causing the problem? Mm, such a good question. So I see the symptoms and and the baby's way of compensating for those uh, those limitations physically change over time. So that will never be consistent. And the reason why we see a change is that the ties, you know, they create tension. And so if the tongue is constantly being pulled down to the floor of the mouth and the baby is constantly trying to work against its own anatomy to elevate the tongue, to generate pressure in the mouth, you know, a couple things can happen. One is they can develop a tighter jaw over time. So they're overworking that TMJ muscle and, and all the other accessory muscles related to that. And over time, tension builds up and those muscles become tighter and shorter. And now the latch is more shallow than it was. The other thing to look at is if we're talking about like that three month mark, when your when lactation switches from this endocrine driven, hormonally driven process to an autocrine one that's dependent on how well your baby is able to extract milk from the breast and they never really great at it to begin with. And now all of a sudden your milk supply lowers. Well, now there's problems, right? Because your breast hasn't really been getting the the correct stimulation um, and whatnot from your baby because they're lacking in that oral function. So it becomes more apparent, more visually obvious. You know, and there's other things as well, right? I mean, babies babies can go one of two ways. Um, and I see this as newborns where, you know, maybe they're they're nursing okay. You know, your milk came in all the things, maybe you have some advantageous breast anatomy, you know, you have very averted nipples that are a nice size and whatever. So things were going okay. Maybe you have very elastic tissue, so you didn't experience much breastfeeding pain. But then as time goes on, and there's these other symptoms that sort of rear their ugly head, like the baby who's having to expend more energy to get the same amount of milk as a baby who is able to nurse efficiently, they become cranky. They may actually not want to be at the breast for a very long time. They might nurse to get just enough milk. And then they're like, man, this is just too hard. This is exhausting, right? And and they just don't want to do it because their brain is always, always in this decision-making process. It's very, very reptilian, very lizard-like, right? That's the part of their brain that's functioning. And the brain is taking in this information, this input, and then it's deciding what kind of output to do. If I have to expend too much energy, I'm actually expending too many calories and I'm going to put myself in a deficit. So I'm going to do the bare minimum and then I'm going to sleep or I'm going to, you know, not do that behavior or I'm going to prefer the bottle that's easier so that I can minimize that calorie expenditure and maximize the calorie intake. And this is just a trade-off that the baby's brain makes. It's not a conscious decision. It's not a personal preference that that baby has, but that can change over time as well. So a lot of parents are very confused by their baby's signals. That's why you need to work with an IBCLC. You can tease out what's going on and go, that baby's not lazy. That baby is going to sleep 
because breastfeeding or bottle feeding is too hard for that baby, you know? And so you could compensate by increasing the flow. You can do other things, but if you constantly have to do those compensations to make breastfeeding work, breastfeeding's not working. Right. And that's so many times the parent is jumping in like, well, if I hold it perfectly and if I position them perfectly and, you know, I do all these things, then, then breastfeeding is going great, but you're having to do like, you should have to like support your baby and make the milk. Like that's your job. That's it. Everything else your baby should be capable of doing on their own. And if you're having to do like 75% of the work and you know that baby's only doing 25%, it's not because like you said, they're not lazy. If they're not doing the work, it's because they cannot do the work. Yep. Like it should be the easiest thing in the world for them to do. Their survival depends on it. And if they can't, huge red flag that their their survival is at stake. So yes, other feeding methods exist. And yes, other alternative milks exist. But, you know, a thousand years ago, they did not. Breastfeeding is a survival skill. And if they can't do that well, it's a really big red flag that there could be other things in their life later on that they may not be able to do well either. Yeah. So, I'm not a let's treat a tongue tie just in case there's a speech impediment later. That's not why we do any procedure. But if I can tell that a baby physically can't get their tongue to the side and then back, then how are they supposed to chew food? How are they supposed to take food in their mouth and get it to their their teeth and then put it back in the middle and move it back to their throat? Like if they can't do it now, they're definitely not going to be able to do it later if they're physically unable to when there's nothing but liquid in their mouth. So I don't have to have a crystal ball to know like your baby's probably going to struggle with textures and solids because they can't move their mouth to move it safely around and swallow. So I don't like that. Well, let's just clip it in case there's speech or solid problems down the line. Like your baby's struggling today. What can we do to help them now? Yep. Absolutely. And and I also would like to point out that I think that ties, obviously, they affect breastfeeding on a very core level and they affect all of these other things. But the reason why a lot of the time that we see it affect breastfeeding so drastically is because it affects the airway and it affects breathing. A baby has to suck, swallow, and breathe every time that they are nursing, right? They're breathing every moment of the day. And if they're not, that's a huge concern, right? So you can hold your breath for, you know, however many number of seconds, right? You can go many, many hours without having anything to drink or eat days for food right now. Your baby can't, but, you know, they can go a lot longer without eating or drinking than they can breathing. If your baby struggles to stay latched at the breast, it's because they can't breathe and nurse very well at the same time, right? So there's there's all these things that we want to look at. Like if your baby is swallowing air when they're feeding, there's there's a, a you know, an interrupt, um, an interruption in that pattern there, right? They shouldn't be swallowing air at the same time they're swallowing milk. So babies get defensive and protect their airway in different ways. Oftentimes they're sleeping and and breathing through their mouth, which they should be obligate nose breathers. And if we're seeing those problems now, what we need to understand is that misbreathing affects your child's whole body, their brain development, their ability to emotionally regulate themselves, to self-soothe, right? If your baby can never handle being put down, but they nurse great, there's something going on. And so airway is the foundation to 
feeding issues to neurological issues to psychiatric issues to, you know, body tone and tension issues and all of these things, right? It, it can be the foundation of, you know, how well your baby eliminates stools and so many other things. And so when we're observing what's happening with breastfeeding, maybe the baby can get milk and maybe they can do it without causing you pain. But is this baby able to maintain a functional airway while doing that? And that's another huge consideration that impacts your baby today. Now, does that mean they have sleep apnea today? No, it means they might have it when they're 30. But if they can't breathe well today, they are not doing well overall. And so that's another big consideration to take into account. And this may be something really hard for you to be able to tell as a parent, but it is one of those like, this is an immediate issue and we need to make sure this baby can optimally nose breathe without over breathing and, and being at a super fast pace and never being able to sleep deeply and all those things. Yep. And airway is obviously like that. That's life, you know? So it's like, it's literally eating, you know, we're, we're talking about like the basic hierarchy of like human needs to function and stay alive and tongue function impacts those really, really big things. So um, like I was told that uh, by a provider that I don't revise if the only issue is maternal pain. So that's the mindset from a lot of people in healthcare right there. Right, right, right. Um, so, you know, talk about gaslighting, but like, matters what, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> right. But what we're, so like, first of all, thank you for that. But uh, I'll just be in pain 12 times a day, I guess. Um, but you've ignored the fact that my son is mouth breathing. You've ignored the fact that he's reflexy, that he's never settled, that, you know, all these other things that, that are an issue now, like you're looking at a growth chart and that's it. And, you know, he's, he's more than a growth chart. He's a whole person and he's got this whole life ahead of him and he deserves to be set up for lifelong health. And, you know, his diabetic sleep apnea, tongue tied father did not get that same, um, you know, same trajectory. You know, there, there's so many things that can be impacted by airway health and we have the privilege of being able to address them and, and help parents with them early. And then parents just need to know, I think, how to how to navigate a really confusing process a little better. So I really appreciate you uh, hashing some of this out. And hopefully people have felt like uh, they've got a little bit more clarity in how to navigate. Yes, absolutely. I love that you have this level of expertise and knowledge and experience to know how to help families who are in these very difficult situations because people like you are rare. And I'm just so grateful that you're willing to talk about this and get this information out there to more families because they really need to hear it. And for a lot of people, what you've said is very affirming, right? And they're they're like, oh my goodness, someone actually recognizes what I'm going through. I'm not crazy. I am not, you know, overblowing what's going on, right? And so when you can eliminate that self-doubt for someone and you can build their confidence and you can help them, you know, sort of readjust their, their path through motherhood and you know, mothering their infants. I think it's very, very powerful. So thank you for this conversation today. Oh, you're so welcome. It was great. Bye. Bye. Did you know most moms stop breastfeeding in the first month postpartum? I believe succeeding at breastfeeding means having the right mindset 
In fact, studies show that the number one factor that determines breastfeeding success is commitment, which is why I've created my incredible audio download of breastfeeding affirmations, where I give you actionable mantras so you can breastfeed your baby with confidence and peace of mind. And best of all, it's free. To get access to this audio and PDF, simply visit holisticlactation.com slash mantras, and you can get started right now.